You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, from our Counterculture series, a verse-by-verse study of the Sermon on the Mount. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Now here's Pastor Nick. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people who have come to find out who he is and what he's all about. And even today, the Sermon on the Mount is still one of the best places that you can come to to find out who Jesus is and what he is all about. You know, I think there's something special about the Sermon on the Mount. There's a reason why, uh, you know, this is one of the most well-known and and beloved sections of Scripture. There's something special about it. There's a way in which uh, the words that Jesus spoke here have a kind of an electric quality to them, if you know what I mean. It means that they, they resonate deep down inside of you. You don't just hear them and read them, but you actually feel them. They, they stir up something within us. Now, why, why is that? I, I was thinking about that this week, and here's a few things I'd like to point out. If your Bible's anything like mine, then you'll notice that starting here in Matthew chapter 5, there's a whole lot of red letters, which indicates that these are the words that were spoken by Jesus himself. Now, this practice of printing the words of Jesus in red letters, it became popular only about a hundred years ago. It was started, actually, this kind of movement started in New York City. And so for that reason, it's really only done mostly in English Bibles. Now, it's kind of spread to a few other languages, but it's mostly unique to English Bibles that we print the, the words of Jesus in red letters. Like in my Hungarian Bible, no red letters in there. But in English Bibles, the practice of putting Jesus' words in red letters became so popular it's now almost impossible to find an English Bible that doesn't have the words of Jesus in red letters. Now that begs the question, doesn't it? Is there any difference between the words that Jesus spoke as opposed to, say, the teachings of Paul or John or Peter? And the answer is, well, in one way, no, there's not a difference. But in another way, yes, there, there is. Let me explain. The teachings that Jesus gave are in no way more inspired by the Holy Spirit than the words of Paul or John or Peter. What Paul writes in the New Testament is just as inspired by the Spirit of God as what Jesus said in the New Testament. It was all inspired. It all comes to us by the same Spirit. So in that sense, there's no difference. But in another sense, there is a difference. Because what God spoke through Paul in his letters or through Isaiah or David or any of the other biblical writers, it was the inspiration of God spoken through the personality of that writer. And when you read the letters of Paul, or you can get a sense of his personality. The same is true of when we read the Psalms of David or, or the writings of Isaiah or any of the writers of the Bible, you kind of get a feeling for their personality. And that's because it was the inspiration of God expressed through the personality of the writer, through the personality of Paul or David or Peter. But think about what we have here with Jesus. What we have here with Jesus is the inspiration, right, of God. The inspiration of God expressed through the personality of God. And and that's why, in, in a sense, there is something special about the words of Jesus. It's not that they're any more inspired than other parts of the Bible, But it is special that it's the inspiration of God expressed through the personality of God, which is an incredible thing to think about. And that's why we do give special attention to the words of Jesus. You know, what's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is that here in Matthew 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. 
But in Luke chapter 6, there's a very similar teaching that Jesus gave, which is strikingly similar to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's known as the Sermon on the Plain. And in some ways, the Sermon on the Plain is, is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's also distinct in some very uh, important ways. For example, the location was different. The Sermon on the Mount was preached to a crowd on a hillside, whereas the Sermon on the Plain was preached to a crowd on a flat place. Secondly, the occasion was also different. The Sermon on the Mount was preached before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, and the Sermon on the Plain was preached after Jesus chose his 12 disciples. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus sits down to teach. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus stands up to teach. These are just more details that tell us that these are two different sermons that Jesus preached to two different groups of people at two different times. And that's actually important because it tells us something about the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. What most people who study these things, including myself, believe is that the core message of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, that they represent a core message that was Jesus' standard sermon, you could say. In other words, we read in, in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus began his ministry by traveling throughout all the region of Galilee, going to all the villages and preaching in their synagogues, and he says that he declared the gospel of the kingdom everywhere that he went. And when we read that, you know, he's going from town to town, village to village. I believe that this is that message that he preached everywhere he went. You know, itinerant preachers who go from place to place, they usually have a core message that they present everywhere they go. And each time they preach it, it comes out a little bit differently, but the core material is the same. And so it would seem that what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' standard sermon. This is what he preached when he went around teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this core message that Jesus wanted to proclaim is what we might call the declaration of of the kingdom. This is Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. Jesus is coming as the Messiah. If you remember back to our study of 2 Samuel that we did over the past couple months, the promise of the Messiah was the promise of a king, a king who would come in the line of David, and he would come and he would establish a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. He would establish God's kingdom. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am a king, and this is what my kingdom, the kingdom of God, this is what it's all about. These are the priorities and the values and the fundamental principles upon which it functions. This is my kingdom. This is what it looks like. This is what it means for you to become part of my kingdom. This is what life looks like. This is how you will live if I am your king. This is what it means to be a disciple of me. And what Jesus tells us in this section that we're looking at today is this. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a changed person changing the world. A changed person changing the world. That is uh, the title of our message today. So to this crowd of people who came to be his disciples, we're going to look at it in verse 13. This is what Jesus says to this crowd. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And last Sunday, we began our study of the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, which are known as the Beatitudes. And there in the Beatitudes, Jesus begins this great sermon by describing the essential character of anyone who would be his disciple. 
Now here in verses 13 through 16, Jesus is now going to describe not the character of his disciples, but the influence that his disciples will have in the world. You could put it this way. In the Beatitudes, Jesus describes who his disciples will inevitably be. But here in in this next section, Jesus describes what his disciples will inevitably do. In the Beatitudes, Jesus describes how anyone who would come after him and become his disciple, how they would be a changed person. So when we come to God, we read Jesus was talking about this last week. You come to God and you have to come to him acknowledging your spiritual poverty, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing to offer him spiritually. And you mourn over that. And at that point, you can receive the truest comfort in the world, the comfort of knowing that your sins have been forgiven by God. And we respond to that by submitting our entire lives to God and making him our Lord. And then we also talked about how when that happens, he comes into your life and he changes you. He changes you from the inside out. He changes you and gives you a new heart and makes you a new person. So to be a disciple is inevitably, inevitably to become a changed person. But, but also to be a disciple is to be a changed person who then changes the world. Jesus says, if you are my disciples, this is the kind of impact that you will have on the world, on the communities that you're a part of, on the society that you're in. First of all, Jesus says, my disciples will be like salt. Now, why salt? What is, what is the deal with salt? Well, think about what's special about salt. First of all, salt is valuable, and Jesus wants his disciples to be valuable in the world. Now, we don't necessarily tend to think about salt as being particularly valuable. I mean, you can get salt for free, right? You go to a restaurant, they're not uh, charging you extra for the salt. They leave it right there on the table. They're not really worried about anybody stealing it, you know, because salt is a pretty common thing. You can get it even for free. But in the ancient world, salt was very valuable. In fact, there were times in which Roman soldiers were paid in salt. That's how they would receive their wages because salt was a valuable commodity. And the reason it was valuable was because of all the things that it was used for. So what were the uses of salt? Well, one of the primary uses of salt was as a preservative. Salt prevents decay. It preserves. So salt was and still is to our day often used to cure meats and prevent meats from going rancid or from going bad. In the ancient world, this was particularly important because they didn't have refrigerators like we do. And so salt was essential for preserving meat so that people didn't get sick. Also, salt has a healing quality. You know, we have these sayings about, uh, you know, pouring salt on an open wound. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that, but if you have, it actually, I've done it, it hurts, but it also disinfects and it causes your wounds to heal faster. And if you've ever, you know, lived near the ocean, you know that if you swim in salt water, it cleans up your skin. And so salt has a healing quality. So by saying that Jesus' disciples are the salt of the earth. Jesus is describing the kind of impact, the kind of influence that his disciples will have on the different communities that we are a part of. In our cities, in our workplaces, in our families, in society at large, Jesus' disciples should have a preserving and a healing influence. Now what's implied here 
Now think about this, what's implied? If something's needed to preserve and to heal, well, that implies that our society, human society, human culture, has a natural tendency towards decay and decline. And so the the work of a Christian, the influence of Jesus' disciples in our society is that we make it better. One of the ways that we do this, I'm thinking, how, can, how do we do this practically? One of the ways that we do this is by making our voices heard, by speaking out, by speaking out boldly against injustice and evil in society, by advocating for what is right. We slow the decay of society. We have a healing effect on communities and cities and the world at large in other ways as well, not just by using our voices. For example... Christian theology leads us, it it lends itself towards, it teaches us to do things which are countercultural, but which have absolutely a very healing effect on society and on the world. Let me give you an example. Uh, Our theology as Christians has led us to adopt more orphans than any other group of people in the world. Christians adopt more orphans than any other group of people in the world. And Christians choose to adopt not because they can't have children, but because we have a theology which tells us that God adopted us. You see, so as Christians, we have a culture of adopting orphans because the message of the gospel is that God loved us and God adopted us into his family and he loves us and takes care of us as his own children even though he's not obligated to and therefore we should go out and do the same. Adoption is a way that we get to live out the gospel. And here at Whitefields, we love adoption, by the way. And in a world where there is an orphan crisis, you need to know this, that Christians have a preserving and a healing effect on society. And this is one of the ways. Adoption's a good example. But there are more. As Christians, we also love and care for disabled people and people with special needs. Because, again, we have a theology which tells us that people with disabilities, people who are handicapped, people with special needs, They have just as much intrinsic value as anyone else because they too have been created by God and they bear the image of God. Now think about this. That may seem normal to you that that we care about the disabled and the handicapped, but do you realize that that is not how all societies in the world think about disabled people and people with special needs? For example, the Nazi regime systematically killed the disabled and the mentally handicapped because they were a burden to society and in their survival of the fittest mentality there was just no purpose at all in burdening society with people with disabilities. In many societies throughout history and even today there's a tendency to kill babies who are born with deformities. But Christians, as Christians we have a theology which makes us care about the least of these in our society. That's why we fight to prevent abortion. That's why we fight against human trafficking and we, we fight against exploitation and modern slavery. We, adver- we advocate for fair treatment of all people in society, no matter their race, their gender, the color of their skin, because we believe that all people are created equal before God. Now, in fact, so much of what is good about our society here in America and in the West, so much of it is shaped by and comes from a worldview which is influenced by Christian theology. Now, some people at this point might say, you know, what is the point of trying to make society better? I mean, if life is short and the world's condemned apart from Jesus, then shouldn't 
all of our efforts as disciples of Jesus be focused on saving people out of this world rather than trying to make this world a better place? Now, that's a valid question that many people ask. I mean, it's kind of like if this world is a sinking ship, then then why would we try to improve it, right? Like, well, it's like kind of like putting curtains up and refurbishing a sinking ship. It's going down anyway, so why does it need to be fixed up? But it would seem here very clearly that Jesus does not want his disciples to have that kind of attitude toward the world. Instead, he tells us that it's an important aspect of being a disciple of him that we have a healing and preserving influence on the communities that we're a part of and the society that we live in. If for no other reason, because as we read down in verse 16, which we're going to look at today, Jesus says this, Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But I think it's more, there's more to it than just that. Loving our community and trying to improve our society, these are expressions of love to the people around us who may or may not know God. And certainly we are called as disciples of Jesus to love our neighbors just as God has loved us. You know, one Christian author famously put it this way. He said this, To try to improve society is not worldliness, but love. To wash our hands of society is not love, but worldliness. See, countercultural loving actions bring people's attention to the work of God in our lives, that he has changed us, that he has made us fundamentally different people, and our actions speak to them also about what kind of God we have, that our God loves them and he cares about them. But I will add this. Uh, being salt is not all that we're called to be in the world. We're also called to be light which speaks of bringing people the eternal hope, the truth, and the eternal hope of the gospel. And we're going to talk about that just in a minute, but that's an important balance to keep in mind. That we're called to be both salt, meaning showing God's love practically, having a preserving and healing influence in society, and we're also called to be light, you know, bringing people God's truth and the good news of how they can be saved in Jesus Christ. So it's not one or the other. It has to be both. But getting back to this metaphor of salt— Disciples of Jesus have a healing influence on the communities that they are part of for another reason. It's because we have a theology which teaches us to forgive others who sin against us, to forgive people who hurt us, and to not seek revenge, but to leave that to God. It tells us that we have been forgiven, therefore we should forgive others. It tells us we have received mercy, therefore we should be merciful people. We have received grace, therefore we should be gracious people. You know, one of the things that Jesus is implying with this metaphor, that his disciples are the salt of the earth, it's that his disciples are inherently different, right? We are distinct. We are different than the rest of the world that we are a part of. Just as salt is distinct and different as the meat that you put it on, as different as salt is from the meat that you put it on, so we as Christians should be distinct and different. We should stand out and have a different composition than the world that we are a part of. You know, one of the interesting characteristics of salt, and some of you guys are, are biologists in here, so one of the interesting characteristics of salt is that salt never changes its chemical makeup. In other words, salt keeps its integrity. No matter what you mix it in with, it remains salt. And Jesus says, my disciples are like salt. They keep their integrity. 
They're different, they're distinct, and you can put them in any kind of environment, any kind of situation, and they won't lose their integrity. They'll be the same people, and they will, they will, rather than being changed by that environment, they will have an effect on that environment. I mean, isn't that exactly what Jesus was like himself? He had this incredible integrity, which enabled him to go into any kind of situation, any kind of environment, be around all kinds of different people, from politicians to prostitutes. And he wasn't changed, he wasn't corrupted by it, but rather he had an effect on everyone he came in contact with. And that's the kind of people that Jesus' disciples are called to be as well. People of incredible integrity who can go into any environment and not be changed by it, not conform to it, but rather they have an impact and an influence on it. Jesus' disciples, he says, they will be the salt of the earth. Here's another thing that salt does. It adds flavor. It makes things more interesting. I have to tell you that in my time as a Christian, I remember as a teenager, you know, contemplating, you know, should I become a Christian or not, you know, kind of wrestling with that and being afraid that if I became a Christian, then it would be like the end of my life and everything would be boring from then on out. But I got to tell you, I, I look back now and see the path that my life was going to take, which I thought was going to be awesome. Uh, and now I, I look back at the path that my life did take because I followed hard after Jesus. And I have to tell you, without question, it's way more exciting this way. I've had the opportunity to do so many things and go so many places and be challenged in so many ways. And it would have been actually a very small life had I chosen to not follow Jesus. So the disciples of Jesus make the world a, a flavorful place, an exciting place. Another thing that salt does is it produces thirst. So disciples of Jesus should have that effect on the world that we make people thirsty. We make people thirst after God. Jesus' disciples are to be changed people changing the world. We're to be the salt of the earth, precious and valuable to our cities and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our families because we have an effect wherever we go of making things better. See, disciples of Jesus should make the world a better place. So much so that people would say, we really like having those Christians around. I want to hire more Christians to work at my business. I hope that the new neighbors who move into my neighborhood are going to be Christians. When I was pastoring in Hungary, you know, one, of the, one time I got a phone call from one of the business owners in town. And, uh, you know, some of our church members were employees at his business. And he was calling me to ask if anyone in our church was looking for a job because he had been so pleased with the work ethic and the attitude of the people who, who he employed who came to our church. He said, I want to hire more people like that. So he called me up and asked if we have anybody who's looking for a job. That's good. That's what we're talking about. He realized that they were a different breed. He could see that, and he wanted to be around more people like that. And we've experienced something similar even here at our church. You know, meeting here in this facility has its positives and its negatives, right? Pluses and minuses, like anywhere else. Uh, someday we would like to be able to, to get our own facility. But there are some very big positives to being in this place. This building here that we're in is owned by the city of Longmont. And when I first moved here to town, I was told that our church's relationship with the city was a little bit precarious, right? Because the city was concerned about issues regarding the line, you know, between the separation of church and state. And, and what did that look like having a church meeting in a city facility? And so our relationship with the city in the beginning was very professional, but yet I would say somewhat cold, 
Now, all of that changed about a year and a half ago when there was this big flood. I don't know if you guys remember that, but there was this flood that happened. And so, you know, what happened is that this building became an evacuation center and, you know, lots of people in our community were displaced. And, and what happened is that people from our church, they came in here to this building and we got to work throughout our city helping people who had been displaced. And I myself, I came down to this building uh, like on the first day when it was getting really bad. And I, I gave, they, they handed me one of these neon vests and I went around, there were people sleeping on cots throughout this room here and people at tables. And I went around with my Bible talking to people who had just lost their homes, praying for them. And I talked to the city officials who were here at the time and I told them, look, our church just wants to be a blessing to you guys at the city. We just want to be a resource. So I gave them my phone number and I told them, Anytime you need anything done, like at the drop of a hat, I want you to call me and Whitefields is going to make it happen. And so they took us up on that and they did it several times actually. They had us set up that recovery center down at the mall. I know many of you were a part of that. And, uh, and then they had us running other jobs for them. And this building, like I said, it was this evacuation center. But when they had to move everybody out of here, it was, it was a mess in here. It was kind of gross actually. And members of our church came and we cleaned this place up and we threw away all the bedding and we broke down the cots and uh, you know it's a lot of work but we did it because we care about this community and then another thing happened right after that right that Christmas a group from our church went Christmas caroling over in the Greens neighborhood over off of Airport Road which was one of the neighborhoods that was hardest hit in the flood and so, you know, we were going door to door and we were Christmas caroling and lots of people were touched and they'd cry and stuff. Well, a few months later, Pastor Jeff and I, we come in here and we're having a meeting with the city officials who manage this building and who also manage Roosevelt Park because we were talking with them about our Easter outreach last year. And uh, so we get to talking and the lady we're talking to who works for the city, she tells me that, oh yeah, you know, she's had a rough couple months because she lives in the Greens neighborhood and her house got flooded and all this stuff. And I told her, you know, oh yeah, our church, we went Christmas caroling down in the Greens neighborhood. And so this lady, when I say that from the city, she just starts crying, right? And she tells me that she was one of the houses that we caroled at and she was just so touched by it. And so all these things together, you know, what our church did for the city and just reaching out to people, the city officials began to tell us, you know that stuff about church and state and we we're all worried about that. Well, we're not worried about it anymore. And we're just so happy that you guys are here in our city. You realize that the city is happy that we're here in their town. They're happy that our church meets in a city facility. They told us that. They said, we are so happy to partner with you. And now it's like the kind of thing where they ask us, you know, is there anything that we can do for you? And I just asked, uh, I just talked to one of the city officials the other day talking about this year's Easter outreach, and we do hope that you'll be a part of that. And they said the exact same thing again this year. We are so glad that you are here in our city, and we're so happy to be partnering with you. See, I think that that is what Jesus wants. He wants us to be salt in, his, uh, in these communities, in the workplaces, in our families. He wants us to be flavorful, healing, preserving people. We're, we're the people who keep our integrity in every situation and we make the world thirsty for what we have. But there's, uh, there's also another thing that Jesus says here about salt. He says this, if salt loses its saltiness, then how can it be made salty again? It's then good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now you see, I mentioned earlier, salt never loses its chemical integrity. But what they used for salt in the ancient world especially was uh, 
not pure salt. It was mixed with all kinds of impurities, mostly because the salt that they got was from dried salt water. So you end up with this salt water and it's inevitably mixed with, you know, dust and dirt and this kind of white powdery chalk stuff, right? And th there was really nothing you could do with that because it, the salt would easily dissolve or sink to the bottom as the, you know, the main element there. And so you're left with this chalk sometimes that doesn't taste like salt. It's just this white powder. And there's nothing you could do with it. I mean, it would kill plants if you throw it out in your garden. So the only thing it was good for, as Jesus says, is to throw it out on the streets and it would be trampled underfoot by men. In other words, it was totally worthless. Now here's the point that Jesus is making. Salt must keep its saltiness in order to be of any value. The purpose of salt is to be salty and the purpose of a Christian in society is to be different so that we can have an influence. And if as Christians we get so mixed up with impurities that make us, you know, that kind of dilute that which makes us distinct, then we have betrayed our fundamental purpose. John Stott said this, uh, he said, Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. You know, as disciples of Jesus, our goal is not to blend in. Rather, we embrace the fact that we are different because God wants us to be different. And at the point that we're no longer different, we've betrayed our fundamental purpose and function and we have given up that which makes us valuable to society but again being salt in the world is good it's important but by itself it's not enough the world doesn't only need salt they desperately need the light of the gospel so we read from verse 14 Jesus says to these same people you are the light of the world the city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Two times we read in the Gospels that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But now here to this group of people who have come to be his disciples, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So which one is it? Is he the light of the world or are we the light of the world? And of course the answer is yes, both. But the difference is the difference between the sun and the moon, kind of, right? Because the sun is the source of light and the moon simply reflects the light of the sun. It has no light of its own. It only gives off as much light as it reflects from the sun. And the same is true of us as disciples of Jesus. We are the light of the world only in so much as we shine the light of Jesus to the world. And again, the implication here by calling us the light of the world, by saying that the world needs light, the implication is that the world is in darkness. The world is in darkness and is in need of illumination, is in need for someone to show them the way. You know, light historically is a metaphor for truth. Light gives the gift of guidance. Light helps you find your way home. And that is what the church, the community of disciples of Jesus Christ, that is what we should always be doing. We should be showing the world the way back to God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For you at one time were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of the light. 
Now, not only is this an amazing privilege that Jesus would say, you are the light of the world, it's also an incredible responsibility. Because if we are those who possess light in the midst of a dark world, then that means that we have a responsibility to shine that light to others. You know, there's, there's this tendency in our society to say religion should be a private thing. So you go ahead and be a Christian and follow Jesus and do whatever you want. Just keep it to yourself. Don't flaunt it. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it anywhere. Just make sure it's your private thing that you do behind closed doors and it's just, you know, about you and God and, and that's it. And a lot of Christians do that. You know, they don't advertise the fact that they're a Christian. They just kind of keep it between them and God. And it's not quite a secret, but it's, it's kind of a secret because they don't tell anybody about it. And they, you know, nobody knows about it except those who are absolutely closest to them. And so there's a sense in which if you are expecting negative pushback from other people by, you know, if they would know that I'm a Christian, they would, I would get negative pushback. Well, in, in a sense, then you would easily say, hey, could somebody give me a basket because I'd really like to cover this up and just kind of keep it to myself and keep it private. But Jesus would say, no, no, don't do that. By doing that, you're betraying your fundamental purpose as a disciple in the world. Just as the purpose of salt is to be salty, the purpose of light is to shine. And if you're hiding your light, then you're betraying your purpose which you were designed for. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, Christ never contemplated the production of secret Christians, Christians whose virtues would never be displayed, pilgrims who would travel to heaven by night and never be seen by their fellow pilgrims or anyone else. Jesus is saying, if you are going to live the life of one of my disciples, if you are going to be a follower of me, that is not a life lived in isolation. You know, there have been times in the history of the church where there has been this great monastic ideal where people thought that in order to be a really good Christian, like what it means to be a really good Christian is to isolate yourself from the world, right? Like not have any contact with anything that could be a temptation or that could lead you to, you know, be sinful or something like that. And so they would get rid of all distractions. They thought this is what it means to be a good Christian. Get rid of all distractions. Get rid of all temptations. And so people would go off into the desert and some people would climb up snow-covered mountains and they'd like live in a cave with no contact with the outside world. They just live in complete isolation, just them and God. And people looked at that and said, wow, those people are so godly. They're so spiritual. At other times, Christians have huddled together in enclaves, right? So that they don't have to have any contact with anybody who's not a Christian. But let me say this, I do not believe that that is what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ in the world. I don't believe that those people were living the kind of Christian life that Jesus intended for his disciples. They have salt, but it's not being shaken out into the world. They have light, but it's being taken away to a place where nobody can see it. The Christian life is not a life of isolation or secrecy. To do so betrays its very design and purpose. And that's why Jesus says, he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now picture that in your mind, you know. We don't have a lot of cities and hills here in the United States. We tended to build our cities and valleys, but in Europe, in the Middle East, in places where it was important during the Middle Ages to protect your city, they built them up on a hill. 
so that they could easily be defended. And so a city on a hill, you think about it, it's prominent. It's up there. It draws your eyes up to it. You cannot not see it. It's there. And Jesus says that is how we should be as Christians. We should be prominent. We should be visible. He says people in my kingdom, they live lives that are visibly attracting attention to the beauty of God's work. Now, can't you think about this as Jesus is saying this? Can't you see how it would be an absolute priority of Satan to encourage us to be quiet and anonymous believers? To make us want to hide our light and not let other people see it? Jesus goes on, he says, No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. They put it on a lampstand so that it can give light to the whole house. The point is, we should be looking for ways to put our light in more prominent places, not less prominent places. He says, so that the light of Christ in us may be seen by all people. Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So the purpose of our good works as Christians is not to draw attention to ourselves so that people will see how good we are. The purpose is to draw attention to our heavenly Father so they will see how good he is. So they will see how he has saved us, how he has changed us, and so that they will be drawn to him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a changed person, changing the world for God's glory. Now take a second as we close here to think about the people who Jesus said this to. Who's he talking to? He's talking to a bunch of Israeli peasants. Most of them are illiterate. They're probably all haggard looking, you know, like rough living. They're missing some teeth. They look, you know, kind of harsh. They're not rich. They're not powerful. And to these people, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. To these people, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And it's like, seriously? Seriously, Jesus, are you sure? I mean, the earth's pretty big. The world, there's a lot of people in the world. Are you sure these guys are the guys you want to be saying this to? I mean, it kind of seems like you're having some delusions of grandeur. But here's the thing. We know from history that these Israeli peasants who became disciples of Jesus, they became changed people, and they really did salt the whole earth, didn't they? These Israeli peasants, they really did light the world these simple people, they became disciples of Jesus and they were changed and they really did change the world. And we can as well. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for saving us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you came to rescue us. That's the story of the gospel, Lord, that you came on a mission to rescue us and you did it on the cross, Lord. You did it in new life by resurrecting from the dead, by defeating death. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here today who hasn't even gotten to that place of becoming a changed person in you. Lord, would you lead them to that place of seeing that apart from you, they're spiritually bankrupt. Lord, they're in desperate need of forgiveness. And Lord, may they submit their life to you. And Lord, make you their Lord. And will you work in their lives and change them from the inside out. Lord, those of us who have Given our lives to you, Lord, we, we do recognize that we are changed and that we are being changed day by day. Lord, would you help us to be salt and light in the communities that you've placed us in, in our families, in the city, in society. Lord, that we might be changed people, changing the world for your glory 
bringing attention to you and praise to you here in our city and in society at large. Lord, would you enable us to do that by your grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com.